This week we continue our study of Job, and we're going to read from Job chapter 2. So uh, I know it's on the screen for you, but it's also possible for you to read the Bible placed in front of you at the table. So consider using that as well. And the, uh, the reading today is Job chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It might sound familiar to you because in some ways it reads almost identically to the first chapter of Job. But there are some important differences. See if you recognize them before we start to parse it out. So let us read together Job 2, verses 1 to 10. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied, A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, in all this, Job didn't sin in anything he said. His reply to his wife completely ends the part that Hosatan, the accuser, plays in this story. We don't hear from him anymore in the book of Job after this. In effect, Job's words at the lowest point in his human existence have completely uh, disempowered, just completely nullified the argument of the accuser. Because the accuser has gone before God now twice and said, the only reason Job honors you is because you give him what he wants in exchange for it. That's all this is about. He doesn't love you. He just wants what you offer him. And so he's going to do whatever it takes to honor you in order to get what he gets in return. And there's a certain validity to this argument. And so God hears the accusation and offers an opportunity to Satan to put Job's faith to the test. But in the end, Job declares, that is foolishness to think of God that way. That isn't who God is. Here's what I know that is true about God, and I will hold to that till my dying breath. And in that way, Hasatan, Hosatan, the accuser, has been completely taken out of the story. And I will go further to say that in my opinion, which you're allowed to disagree with, Job's wife was acting, acting compassionately when she suggested that he curse God and die. 
you got to remember, she too lost everything. You know, we forget that this is the wife of the man who lost everything, and that means she lost it too. She saw all of her children and their families wiped out. She saw all of her wealth and security wiped out. She saw her husband taken to within an inch of death. And she, like most women in that day, understood that without him, she might not have anything. Remember the stories we talked about in Ruth, about Naomi. So for her to say to him, just curse God and die, is in effect a death sentence for her too. Why would she say this to him? I think she says it to him because it's not personal. She just sees that God has taken him as far as he can go without dying and put him in such a state of misery that it would be better for him to die. And so she's simply saying, God's angry with you. Get, get it through your head. God's mad at you about something. And you can end this by just going ahead and cursing God, and then he'll kill you, and that'll be the end of your suffering. But this becomes then the first of many statements about God that will be heard from here on in this book of Job that tell us how people viewed God in those days and why Job was so completely different in his view of God. Even his own wife didn't see God in the personal way that Job did. Now, in today's message, I'm going to ask you to dive deep. And I mean, you've got to hold your breath because this is a deep dive. I'm not going to lie to you. Laura and I were scuba diving together, scuba diving, I mean, snorkeling together a few months, a few years ago. And I used to do a lot of scuba diving and snorkeling. And I, I sort of boasted to her that I could swim down to the bottom and grab one of those sea potatoes or whatever they're called for her. What are they called? Sea biscuits? Yeah, that. Oh, they look like potatoes to me. She, she wanted one, and I said, oh, I'll get you that. And, you know, and so I used my flippers, and I went deep. Whew. Well, 20 years ago, I could do 20 feet and come back up in one breath. <laughs> but boy, did I feel like I bit off more than I could chew. I took a deep dive, and by the time I got to the surface, I was just pleased that I hadn't tried to breathe any water on the way back up. So taking a deep dive when you're not accustomed to it can be a little scary, but I'm going to ask you to go with me on this one, and I promise we'll all make it to the surface somehow. But the understanding that Job's wife is expressing is that God is not personal, that this isn't a personal thing, that God is a a force, a a being who is is capricious and unpredictable, a, a, a force and being uh, who will bless you as long as you get all the rules right. And she's convinced that she and her husband together have done that well. And so her statement is more defeatist in a general sense than it is a sort of condemnation of her husband's faith. I think she shared his faith to a point, but then when it gets really personal, she can't make that connection, and he can And so as we dive deeply in this message today, we're going to realize that there are a lot of things we can learn about our interpersonal relationships, and I'm going to risk going there with you for a while. First, wives and husbands, we can be married for decades and still not know the deepest things in our partner's heart. You know, you can know them so well that you're tempted to think you know them better than they know themselves. But the truth is, is you cannot know every thought that your partner has. You cannot know the deepest conviction that your partner has. 
you can guess pretty accurately because who better than you who have lived with them all these years and shared everything with them, all the ups and downs, you can guess pretty accurately about their faith, about their commitment, but you cannot know about how they really personally interact with God because that's private, because that's between them and God. So the first thing we learn here is that Job and his wife have built a life together, a beautiful life it would seem, with lots of wealth and prosperity, with a big, beautiful family, uh, you know, lots of children, lots of grandchildren and daughters and sons-in-law, and this is a beautiful family, a beautiful life. And they did this together. There's no way it was just on Job. He's the one that has been singled out because he has a unique relationship with God, even in his own house. And we know this because she said, why don't you just curse God and die? Meaning, honey, I love you, but you are so miserable right now, you're trying to scrape those sores off with a pot shard. Some of us were talking this week, some of us who have had shingles, let me tell you something. If you've never had shingles, I hope you never, ever do. I've had shingles. I know some of you who are nodding at me right now have had it too. There, is few, there are a few things I can think of more painful than shingles. I, I would rather do another shoulder surgery than do shingles again. I'll tell you that. It's horrible. The sores, head to toe, burn and hurt deeply. And it just drives you right out of your mind. It's a wonder you keep your sanity through it. And so I can imagine Job and his suffering. I can imagine him wallowing in the ashes, maybe simply because he's hoping that somehow if he gets something on these sores, it will help them to hurt less. I can see him scraping at them to try to relieve his discomfort. And his wife says to him, honey, at this point we've come so far. We've lost so much. Why don't you just curse God and die? Because, well, then you won't suffer anymore. But it also says that she doesn't see God in a personal way. And this is why Job says to her, woman, you're talking foolishness. That's not who he is. That's not how he operates. That's not what this is about. Again, I don't think he's condemning her. I think he's simply condemning her view of God. And so the first thing I want to say about God in this case is, is you've got to understand it's personal with God. It's always personal. Have you ever used that phrase, hey, this is not personal? Have you ever said that to people? I have. It's usually meant as a way to say to someone, I'm having a little problem with your behavior, but I don't dislike you. I don't have a problem with you. I just don't like what you're doing. Or this is just a business decision. It's not personal. I just have to do what's best. And you know, in all these cases, it's true, but it's not entirely true, is it? Because it gets personal. It always gets personal. Because when you need to make a change in a relationship with somebody you really care about, and it comes to the point where you're trying to separate the, the change discussion from the value of the person, that's where we get into trouble. That's where it gets kind of tense or contentious. Because we're trying to find a way to say to someone, I need to see a change, but I don't want you to think that I think less of you. I love you. I care for you. You're important to me. You matter. But this has to change. And so you're trying to separate the personal and the impersonal, and it can only go so far. And in this story of the relationship between God and the people in this book, it's all about who takes God personally and who doesn't. 
It's all about how God takes it all very personally. And Job is actually somewhat offended by his wife's remarks and perhaps surprised. Have you ever had that moment? And, and Laura and I had this moment once a long time ago. And it was really weird because I thought we were like-minded about everything. I really did. I believed we agreed about everything. And then one day she told me that she didn't agree with me about something very personal that I had said was of great importance to me. And I remember being pretty stunned. I remember going for two or three days just kind of ruminating over that. Oh my gosh, she doesn't agree with me about that. And then I thought, I love her too much to try to change her mind. She can have her own mind about this. She doesn't have to agree with me. We don't have to agree about everything, but, but wow, you know, it was a shocker. I wonder what it was like for Job. He's laying there in misery, and he's convinced that his relationship with God, especially, has a particular idea of how it works. And then his wife says something that after all their years together, all their ups and downs together, she says something he wasn't expecting. And he's blown away by this. And she says, Job, it's not personal. God's just mad at you. Curse him and he'll kill you and then it'll all be over like it's no big deal. And he says, oh, it's very personal. This is very personal. I love God. I have a relationship with God that I value in a way that I can't seem to explain even to my own wife. And now I'm trying to understand what's going on. We will eventually find that Job will question God intensely. And we'll hear God questioning Job back intensely. And we'll eventually learn that this is actually a very loving and healthy discourse. And so what has happened then is God has taken a chance on Job. I have been privileged to study with some experts on the book of Job. If you can imagine in the, in the academic world, there are people who are experts on one book of the Bible, and they dive way deeper than any of us can. And one particular instructor informed me and my class that, that there's indications in the earliest versions of this book that God has really taken a chance here. That there's a concept that's deep. So get ready, hold your breath. There's a sense in the original writings of Job that God, knowing that Job has a free will like God's that has been given to Job in the same way God gave Adam and Eve a unique identity of their own and a unique ability to say yes or no to God, to resist God. Well, if that's what we call free will, then God is taking a risk. When God says, no, I think you're going to discover that Job really loves me. Now you'll say, God knows everything. God is omnipotent. God is all-knowing. And yet, the reality is, is that we can change our minds on God. And God designed us that way. We can turn on God. We can betray God. We can, we can decide that we don't trust him anymore. And God can't know for sure that we won't turn on him until we do. That's what the book in its original written form suggests. So what I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate to you is, is this story illustrates how God is taking a chance on Job. You know, Satan, the accuser, the same one who showed up in the Garden of Eden, might just as well have said to God before he tempted Eve and eventually Adam, 
He could have said, I'll bet you I can get them to eat that apple. And God could have said, I think they will be stronger than that. And who knows which way it would have gone. What we do know from reading Genesis is that as soon as they were tempted and gave in to the temptation, God said, I have another plan. God was all ready to take it wherever it needed to go next. So God listens to our commitments and believes in our faith. And when we fail to keep the faith, God works another plan. And how many of you can tell your own story of how you put your faith in God, you trusted God, and then you didn't. And when you didn't, these were the consequences. And then you did again, and God met you where you were and took you back to where you needed to be. That's my story over and over again. God is always adapting God's response to us because we change our minds. The very minds that he gave us and intentionally designed to be changeable. Angels don't change their mind, the Bible seems to indicate. They're always either black or white. It's just no, there's no simple or no, no thing complicated about them, rather. It's very simple. The point is, God's taken a chance on Job's love. And this is why, then, God says to, to the accuser, go ahead, let him have it, but don't kill him. And I believe that it is God saying, Job says that he has complete faith in me, and now we're going to find out. And I believe, therefore, we can assume that there are times when God allows us to endure testing, when God allows us to suffer through growing pains in order that God can find out where we are in our relationship with God. You say, I love you, God. I'll go with you wherever. However, anytime, any place, and then when things get rough, God says, you still with me? Are you still with me? And then when they get rougher, he says, are you with me? You still there? And when they get dark and you can't see him and you figure he can't see you, God says, you still with me? You still back there? This is what I believe has happened. Hold your breath. We're going to go deep again. This is a story about human relationships because God designed us for a relationship with God. And therefore, God designed our relationship with God as the primary example for all relationships. It stands to reason that if we were designed for a relationship with God and then through the creation of the woman, as it's told in the book of Genesis, we're designed for relationships with each other, then it stands to reason that God has designed us to have the same kind of relationship with God and each other. They would be the same kinds of relationships. Therefore, we can talk honestly about our relationships with each other in the same terms that Job is going to talk about his relationship with God and the way God's going to talk about the relationship with Job. And what we're going to find as this goes forward is that the quality of the relationship has everything to do with how invested we are in the other person. How deeply invested Job is in his relationship with God has been made clear. That's why the accuser is done now. And that part of the story is over. 
But then we get to see his relationship with his wife and his friends tested. These are good friends. And they will remain good friends, even though at times it'll sound like they're really angry with each other. But they're good friends. They sat Shiva with him. That means they came for seven days and just sat in silence with him and mourned with him. That takes a good friend, to be sure. I believe in the end of the story, even though it doesn't tell us they were still friends and perhaps even celebrated how he was right about God and they were perhaps wrong about God. But one of the things that I have learned from reading this story is that human relationships are very difficult if we're invested in the other party. If we care deeply about the other person and then find out they disagree with us or that we don't share the same vision or values, then there's a potential for conflict. And for some reason in church, we have this, this fear, if not phobia in church, toward conflict. We assume that whenever two people get together or two groups of people get together and then disagree about something, that that's conflict, like some kind of holy war. And so we think it's unchristian if we get together in the name of Christ and we don't agree about things. And I think that has been one of the most crippling aspects of church life. I told you we're going deep here, so I'm taking Job to a place you never would have expected. But let's just agree, if you've been in this church a long time, you've seen some really bitter conflict. And I'm willing to bet you that there were times in those bitter conflicts when it wouldn't have been so big a deal to just have an honest conversation about our differences. The problem was, is we waited too long, said nothing, let it get big and bad and ugly and out of control, and then tried to get it under control. And by then, it was hopelessly destined to be an ugly, angry conflict. When in truth, have we simply cared deeply enough about those people, and maybe even as much as we care about what's in our interests, that we might have then come to them in peace and discuss our differences when it was a small problem. But for some reason, church people have developed a real anxiety about any kind of conflict, and so even just having a discussion over what we disagree about seems frightening. And listen, I'm no fool. I know there are certain people whose temperament is such that they go off like a daggone hand grenade if you just tell them that you don't agree with their opinion about something. And we're all so afraid of listening to that explosion of vile temperament that we just try to avoid it. But believe me when I tell you this, if you keep giving in to that kind of hostage taking, eventually there will be major conflict. So it's better to say, you know, I'm not going to let you bully me into withholding my opinion just because you have a nasty temperament. So now I want to tell you something I've learned, and this all comes back to caring deeply about the other party. So that differences of opinion aren't really a sign of discord, but simply a sign of maturity. Several years ago, I was required to read a book called Nonviolent Communication, a Language of Life, Life-Changing Tools for Healthy Relationships. And I went, oh, Lord. You know, these professors, some of them just love these touchy-feely books. Ugh. I didn't want to read this book. I was so disgusted by the title. And I just thought, oh, great. Nonviolent communication. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
But I started reading the book mainly because I thought maybe I could get a general gist of it and bluff my way through that part of the class. I know none of you have ever done that, you know. Yeah. Funny thing was is that the guy captivated me almost from the very beginning of the book where he starts out by saying, I know this is a silly title for this book. I wish I could have come up with something better, but it accurately describes what I would like you to learn reading this book. And I thought, okay, I admire this man's honesty. His name is Marshall Rosenberg. He's since passed away. But if you Google him or look up on YouTube, you can see videos of him and everything. I was captivated by this book, and it literally changed my heart in certain ways, and I never saw that coming. This book was not something that I expected to affect me the way that it did. And basically, Dr. Rosenberg said, if violent means acting in ways that result in hurt or harm, then much of how we communicate, that is, judging others, bullying, having a racial bias, blaming, finger-pointing, discriminating, speaking defensive or judging who is good or bad or what is right or wrong with people, well, you could definitely call that violent communication. In other words, when we speak in ways that cause other people pain, it's violence. When people speak to us in a way that causes pain, it's violence. Child psychologists will tell you that a child that's been yelled at regularly may as well have been beaten with a stick because it has the same psychological effect on the child. So it doesn't really matter whether you ever laid a hand on them. If you spoke violently to them, it hurt them the same way. And so Dr. Rosenberg makes the case that if we would just be conscious of how our speech can be condemning or judging of others. In, in other words, when we tell someone we disagree with them in a way that seems to demoralize them or diminish their value as a person or somehow suggests that their character isn't what it ought to be, we're hurting them. And so the question is, is how do we talk to people with whom we disagree or whose opinions are so vastly different from our own? Our society's not helping much, is it? If you don't like the present president, if you don't like the current president, uh, you're in the majority and that's okay. But if you do, you see how people violently react to it. And of course, in the previous presidency, the same rules apply, but they were backwards, you know. So all I'm saying is, is in our society, we don't know how to talk to each other about what we disagree on. The death of John McCain is a sad thing because he may be one of the last few statesmen that we have left. And all I'm saying is, is we have a civility that we've lost in the way that we communicate with each other. And the book that we call the Bible contains all sorts of lessons about civility and treating each other with dignity and respect. Because God has given us a dignity that deserves respect because God's given us a mind like God's own and a soul worthy of saving by none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. And so every person we encounter is of sacred worth and worth understanding in order that we might then be understood. And so what Rosenberg taught was that nonviolent communication is an intentional effort to hear the needs of another person with a genuine interest in their needs. Because the truth is, is whenever someone starts getting upset... Whenever someone starts getting uncomfortable with our conversation, it's usually because they're feeling threatened in some way. 
they're beginning to feel that some very basic need of theirs is going to get endangered in some way if you persist with your line of thought or your questions or your words. And so what Rosenberg wants people to do, what he taught people to do, was how to listen to the needs the other person is expressing and listen to their fears and anxieties and then recognize those and to openly acknowledge them. I realize this is probably making you uncomfortable. I sense that you're feeling a little threatened here or you're feeling like something is at risk for you. Talk about that. And as we get to discover what is at risk for them, and we find out that they're just afraid that, that something is going to change forever. Remember last week's discussion of grief? Then they're overcome with grief. And if we recognize the potential for danger to another person, and then we express the potential danger that we feel, then we're talking about each other's needs, and we find all kinds of ways to help each other get our needs met. I know this is deep, and I know it probably sounds pretty touchy-feely. Now, I'm pretty resistant to that kind of stuff myself, but this makes sense. And I've put it into practice over the years since I learned it, and I'm telling you, it works. And it all stems from the truth that I wanted you to hear in today's message. Job was upset with his wife because she was declaring God as an impersonal, supernatural being who took care of you as long as it was in his interests and put you out when you no longer served his purposes. And Job said, no, that's not who he is. I have had opportunities in the past to have been deeply misunderstood by others. It's one of the dangers that I experience in my job. I'm trying to lead according to God's call on my life. I'm trying to lead toward a vision I feel like God gave me and some people get deeply threatened and the last person they ask about their feeling of threat is me. But then they talk to other people about what I'm doing and saying and how it looks to them and what they're afraid of and how that's going to translate into something terrible for the church and for them. And, and then I find out that another person valiantly stood for me and said, you just don't know him though. You don't know him like I know him. If you knew the man that I know, you'd believe that he's doing what's best as far as he has an understanding of it. And I've had people defend me like that. And I find out much later that all of this happened somewhere in a coffee shop or it happened somewhere in uh, the basements of the church or parking lots or whatever. And I have found that these are the most beautiful things that people do to express love and faith in me. And it is a deeply warm, warm and beautiful thing. I, I, can't, I don't know how else to explain it. And I feel like this is what Job is doing. I feel that he's saying to his wife, yeah, but that's not how God is. You're, you're reading him all wrong here. You're, you're not understanding what he's really like. He has a courage in his conviction that is unbelievable. He is so sure that he understands who God is and what God is all about. Now, I told you this was deep, and I also know that it's taken me longer than usual to explain this, but these are foundational teachings for where we go next with this book of Job. And next week you get a break because we're going to do this after Jubilee celebration. But for now, I just want to close with this remark. 
Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Now you might remember from when I was preaching the series on the Sermon on the Mount, I told you that Jesus was trying to explain the real nature of relationships between God and people. So just so you know, between the time of Job and the time of the Sermon on the Mount, most people still didn't get it. <laughs> it's, it's an ongoing problem that we suffer with even now. Understanding God's relationship with people the way that God intends for it to be is an ongoing conflict among the people. And it all comes back to this. If we would just listen to each other, if we would just honor each other's personhood, and actually believe that each man and woman in this room was made in the image of God and has sacred worth to God, so much so that Jesus died for them, then we might listen to them with the goal of understanding. And we might speak to them with the goal of being understood. When I was a teenager, I had a poster in my bedroom with the words of something called the Desiderata, written by Max Ehrman. I used to stand there in my room and read it out loud. My mother must have thought I was nuts. She's downstairs in the kitchen cooking, and I'm standing upstairs reciting the Desiderata. But the words were powerful. And it's a secular statement, but it says one thing that really popped into my mind as I was preparing today's message. It said, as far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly and listen to others. Even the dull and the ignorant have a point too. So let's just treat each other with that kind of dignity and understand that that is the greatest invitation of one who really loved God. One of the half a dozen or so people in the Old Testament that were openly referred to as friends of God. If you want to be a friend to God, treat each other with dignity. Let us pray. We love you, God. We really do want to be the kind of people you designed us to be. Help us to demonstrate that through courageous love and respect for one another, we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.